Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome. How are you doing today? Much better than first service, it sounds like. All right. Thank you for being here. Uh, man, we are excited next week for Trunk or Treat. Uh, I think, like Kathleen said, we're looking for about 15 more cars to join us. I'm excited because we have stashed about 200 pounds of candy over in one of the offices, and I think I've eaten every single Almond Joy that there is in there, okay? So really looking forward to this being over with... That's a sin to say that and act that way. Almond Joys are the best, and you know it, right? All right, I want to read a, read a quote from someone named Mary Bell. She's a counselor for high-level executives. Here's what she says. These days, the best people don't abuse alcohol. They abuse their lives. You're successful, so good things happen. You complete a project, and you feel dynamite. That feeling doesn't last forever, and you slide back to normal. You think, I've got to start a new project, which is still normal, but you love the feeling of euphoria, so you've got to have it again. The problem is you can't stay on that high. She continues on. She says an achievement addict is no different from any other kind of addict. We live and we work in an area of the country that we know is full of achievement addicts, right? And oh, by the way, we probably have a few achievement addicts right here in this room today. That, that we have to be successful, that we, we have to achieve, and, and we want that feeling of euphoria. And that feeling of euphoria is so important to us, so much so that it's like it, we're an addict and we're searching for that next hit. We need that hit, and we need it over and over and over again. That's why today, as we continue our series called God, God's at War, we are talking about the God of success. Because for so many people, and especially I think people in this area, we struggle with this particular God. Uh, success makes us who we are. Success makes us feel important. Success gives us a purpose for our life. And yet if we're honest, success is killing us. It's killing our marriages. It's killing our relationships. It's killing our families. It's killing our friendships. It's killing our bodies, our minds, and our souls. And so today we're going to talk about the God of success as we continue the series, God's at War. And if you haven't been here, this series really is about the little G gods that we chase after in our life. They're about the idols that have become more important to us than God has. And so we go through our life worshiping these little G gods and not worshiping the big G God. We go through our, our life looking at these little G gods, these, these idols in our life and saying, hey, can I get permission from you to go over here and say yes to the God? And so we struggle with this, and there's this battle and this war this in every one of us, I think, when it comes to these gods in our life, but especially when it comes to the God of success. And again, that God, we'll find, is killing us. And that's why we're going to spend our, our time this morning in the book of Kings, in 2 Kings here. 2 Kings, starting with verse, or chapter 5. We're going to look at a story that if you grew up in church, you went to like kids' classes as a, as a child, then you probably remember this story because it's kind of a unique story. I don't talk about it a whole lot on a Sunday morning, but it's a, it's a powerful story of success and what had to take place for this one particular, particular man. It comes out of 2 Kings chapter 5, starting with verse 1. It says, the king of Aram had great admiration for Naaman, the commander of his army, because through him the Lord had given Aram great victories. So we meet this guy named Naaman, and we, from the very beginning, find out that he's 
pretty important. He's the commander of this particular army for this country of Aram. Now, Aram is present-day Syria, so you kind of imagine what that place would have looked like back then. It was a powerful place. And so if you keep reading, though, as we go through this chapter, we're not going to read the whole chapter, but as you keep reading, you, you find that, that Naaman, he's wealthy. Uh, again, he's very important. He's successful. He's a commander. He's a warrior. Uh, when you look a little bit further down, it looks like his main role is sort of this prime minister of Aram. So he's there for the king. He's at the, the king's side helping him through whatever decisions need to be made. This guy is, is really, really important. And so we look at Naaman and we think he's successful. Like he, he's got it all. And if, if you were alive back then, you would have looked at Naaman and said, here's a successful guy. And, and today we look at Naaman and we're like, hey, here's a successful guy. We would love to have this life that Naaman has. And the truth is, this is what many of us are striving for. We're striving for success, right? We, we want the wealth and we want the power and we want to be known and we want to be important. And so we go through life, just like Mary Bell said, as achievement addicts. We go through life needing that next hit in our life and we can't get enough of it. Again, we need it over and over and over again. Now, where does this come from? I think for many of us, it comes from our upbringing. At some point in time, somebody in our life taught us this lesson. They said, your worth comes from your achievements. And so here we are even years later, decades later, and we look at ourselves and we tell ourselves, hey, my worth in life comes from my achievements. And so we still hold on to that. We still believe in that. And we look at Naaman and we're like, Naaman did this. Naaman, he achieved. He did great. He's successful. And I want to be that exact same person because I want to feel like I'm worth something. But the question that we struggle with is at what expense? What are we willing to pay out? What are we willing to give up for that success? And for many people, we're willing to give up almost everything. So we meet this guy named Naaman. He's successful, but there is an issue. Look at the end of verse 1. It says, but though Naaman was a mighty warrior, he suffered from leprosy. Again, this guy has everything, but we see here the writer says, he has, a, he has a skin disease. Now, when you see that word leprosy throughout Scripture, it could be any kind of skin disease. But leprosy itself uh, was an ailment that would make your, your skin would swell. Uh, you start to get these little white spots all over it. It start to scab. Uh, your skin would begin to flake. Um, your skin and your bones would actually begin to, to crack and actually to, to literally break off. Like your body would be falling apart right in front of your eyes. And so you would end up being, being crippled. You would end up um, being disfigured. And death came pretty quickly for you when you had one of these skin diseases, especially something like leprosy. Now here's this guy who's got all this power. He's got all these possessions. He's got all this prestige. He's important. He's known. And yet his body is failing him. His body again, is literally falling apart. And he knows that death is coming. So what does he do? Look at verse 2. At this time, Aramean raiders had invaded the land of Israel. And among their captives was a young girl who had been given to Naaman's wife as a maid. One day the girl said to her mistress, I wish my master would go see the prophet in Samaria. He would heal him of his leprosy. So we have this young slave girl. She has been kidnapped from Israel. She is now there in Aram, and she is uh, working for Naaman's wife. 
And she knows what's happening, right? She lives in that house. She sees Naaman. She knows what they're experiencing. And so she goes to her, her uh, mistress and says, hey, here, here's the deal. There's this prophet in Israel. And I know if Naaman were to go see him, this prophet would heal Naaman of his leprosy. Look at verse 4. So Naaman told the king what the young girl from Israel had said. Go and visit the prophet, the king of Aram told him. I will send a letter of introduction for you to take the king of Israel. So Naaman started out carrying his gifts, 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. The letter to the king of Israel said, with this letter, I present my servant Naaman. I want you to heal him of his leprosy. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes in dismay and said, am I God that I can give life and take it away? Why is this man asking me to heal someone with leprosy? I can see that he's just trying to pick a fight with me. Now, there's a couple of things here. We, um, we find this interstate letter that's being passed to the king of Israel. This was common in those days, especially between royal families. And uh, it was common when there were medical conditions at, at, at play. So the king would send this letter to another king and say, hey, you've got better doctors when it comes to this one particular ailment. So I'm sending this person who's important to me to you, and I'd love for your doctors to see if they can heal them. Of course, you had to sweeten the pot a little bit, and so you'd give a little bit of a gift. And uh, so what we find here this king of Aram is doing, he's given this gift, and it's a, it's a really big gift. And again, this was not normal uh, for a gift this size to be given. We're talking probably in the neighborhood of about $5 million today. But Naaman to him is so important he will do whatever it takes to heal Naaman. And so he sends this money, he sends this letter, he sends Naaman, and the king of Israel gets it, and he's like, oh, this is great, we can help him out. He says, no. He thinks this is, this is a prank. He, he thinks this is uh, the king of Aram is trying to start this battle and this war. And so he's actually pretty upset that Naaman is there and this letter has come he thinks this is the moment the war is going to take off again. But look at verse 8. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes in dismay, he sent this message to him. Why are you so upset? Send Naaman to me, and he will learn that there is a true prophet here in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and waited at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha is this prophet. He hears that Naaman's in town and he tells the king, and you can kind of tell reading some of this right here that it seemed like there's a little tension between Elisha and this particular king. Uh, it's almost like Elisha tells that king, like, dude, just grow up, all right? It's not what you think. Send Naaman to him. And oh, by the way, I'm going to show him what a true prophet of Israel looks like. And so Naaman goes to Elisha's house. He shows up and read this in verse 10. But Elisha sent a messenger out to him with this message. Go and wash yourself seven times in the Jordan River. Then your skin will be restored and you will be healed of your leprosy. I love this part because Elisha doesn't even come out to meet Naaman. I'm guessing maybe he's got his ring doorbell, right? And so like the doorbell rings and he looks at his phone and he's like, oh, I definitely don't want to be around this guy right now. I'm just going to send my messenger out there to have this conversation. Kind of like you do with solicitors. You know how you are, don't you? Ring the doorbell. You're like, nope, not going to answer the door. Um, on our door at home, it says no solicitation or no solicitors except if you're selling Thin Mints. So we're always looking for Girl Scout 
Scouts to be out there. Like, Girl Scouts are here. Let's go out to the front door. We'll talk to them. But uh, for some reason, uh, Elisha's like, I don't really have time to do this. And he sends his messenger out. Now, remember who Naaman is. He's powerful. He's important. He's known. He works for the king of Aram. He has it all. And Elisha doesn't even want to give him any of his time that day. And again, he sends this messenger out. And how does Naaman respond? Look at verse 11. But Naaman became angry and stalked away. I thought he would certainly come out to meet me, he said. Here's this warrior, the commander of the army, this prime minister. He's part of the royal courts. He's an important person in his own mind. But Elisha's kind of like, yeah, you're not really that important. He's like, but here's what you can do. I'm going to send this messenger out, and the messenger's going to tell you exactly the steps that you need to take. And I'm guessing for Naaman, he's kind of thinking to himself, like, no one treats me this way. Again, doesn't this guy know who I am? Verse 11, or the rest of 11 through 13. I expected him to wave his hand over the leprosy and call in the name of the Lord his God and heal me. So Naaman turned and went away in a rage, but his officers tried to reason with him and said, Sir, if the prophet had told you to do something very difficult, wouldn't you have done it? So you should certainly obey him when he says simply, go and wash and be cured. Do you notice what Naaman's looking for here? He's looking for some magic to happen, isn't he? He's looking for Elisha to come out, wave his hand, and all this leprosy is all of a sudden going to be gone. But now here's this prophet who will not even meet with him. And all this prophet says through a messenger is go down to this river and dip yourself seven times. Everything's going to be fine. Now, is there anything special about this? Uh, not really. If we go back to the book of Leviticus and we look at some of the Jewish teachings or rules in those days, uh, if you had leprosy, one of the ways you could cleanse yourself is you would go down the Jordan River. And uh, in Leviticus, it says, you know, dip yourself seven times. You'll be cleansed of leprosy. So, I mean, it's not like he's, he's coming up with something brand new. He, he just tells Naaman to do what, what they had been telling people who had leprosy to do in those days anyway. But Naaman feels disrespected. Again, doesn't this guy know who I am? And so he decides to leave. He's angry. His expectations aren't being met. But thankfully, his officers say, look, Naaman, what do you got to lose? Just, just try it. And oh, by the way, it's actually not very difficult. It's something pretty simple to do. Verse 14. So Naaman went down to the Jordan River and dipped himself seven times as the man of God had instructed him. And his skin became as healthy as the skin of a young child, and he was healed. Here's Naaman who listens to these officers. He heads down to the Jordan River to do what this messenger had instructed him to do from the mouth of Elisha. And I wonder what this moment was like for Naaman. Because remember, he's angry, right? He's upset, he's full of rage, he feels disrespected, he gets in the water, and again, he's mad when he does this, and he gets in the water, he gets in the water, he goes down, he dips up, and I'm sure he looks at his skin, and nothing's going on. And he's probably like, this is stupid. Why, why, why am I, I doing this? I, I'm, I'm important, this is a waste of my time. But then he does it again, he dips down in the water, he comes back out, he looks at the skin again, nothing's happened. Are these people making fun of me? 
Why are they disrespecting me? I'm an important person. And I bet every single time he dips down in the water and he comes back up, and I'm sure, I'm sure he's counting every single moment, like those seven. I want to get to seven and see what happens. But he comes up and he's looking at his skin and nothing, nothing is going on. I wonder in those, those times where he dips down and comes back in his mind, is he thinking about all his successes? And, and I wonder if he's thinking about those successes and asking the question, was it worth it? Was this really worth my time? Was this really worth my effort? Was it really worth all the relationships that are broken in my life because, because I've become successful? Because he knows for him with leprosy, not only is his body falling apart, but again, death is coming quickly for him. And so I can only imagine what he's thinking as he dips and comes up and dips and he comes up. And then he comes up that seventh time and he looks at his skin and he is fully healed. What Naaman really needed was to meet, listen to, and to follow God. And in the end, he finds that there's something that's so much more important than his addiction to achievement, to his addiction to success, to following these gods of success. He finds that the God is worth so much more than his little gods of success. I think we can look at the story of Naaman and look at our own lives. And again, living in a place like this, and maybe, again, many of us being achievement addicts that, that there's something here with Naaman that we can put to, to work in, in our own lives every single day. And there's tons of lessons we can learn here. But this morning, I want to share with you three lessons that I think are pretty important that I've learned from the story of, of Naaman. And here's lesson number one. Success brings us a false sense of security. Success brings us a false sense of security. There are two books that I've been using throughout this series. One's God's at War by uh, Kyle Eidelman, where we got the title from. He's a pastor and an author. The other one is Tim Keller, again, pastor and author. He wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods. And in Counterfeit Gods, Keller says this. He says, one sign that you have made success an idol is the false sense of security it brings. The poor and the marginalized expect suffering. They know that life on this earth is nasty, brutish, and short. Successful people are much more shocked and overwhelmed by troubles. There's something about us where we think if we're successful, we are immune from the troubles of this world. It's almost like we, we feel like we wear this magic cape. And as long as we have this magic cape on, that it, it fends off all the hurt and, and the pain and, and the struggles of, of life around us. And so we live with this false sense of security, thinking nothing or, or no one can harm us. But the reality is if we're already at that place and that's what we're thinking, it's too late. Because we're already there. We, we have this false sense of security that is already killing us and hurting us. And oh, by the way, it's hurting people around us. Well, who is it hurting? Well, it's hurting our relationships at work. How many people, how many people have you run over for success where you work? How many people have you knocked to the side so you could be the first one there at work to be successful in whatever the project may have been or that title may have been or that position that you've just bulldozed people to get to that place? Well, you know what? You're hurting those relationships with people you work with. Even if the people around you are the same, that doesn't make it right. 
or hurting our relationships at home. If you wonder why your marriage is struggling, your kids won't talk to you, if you're wondering why your friends are like, where have you been? What's going on with your life? It could be that you're this addict when it comes to achievement, that you have followed fully the God of success and you're chasing after this God and you've gotten to this place where you've forgotten about the people who mean the most to you. That for you, those relationships, you've forgotten about them because you were chasing success and now you're looking around like, oh, something's not quite right here. What's, what's the problem? Well, it could be, could be you. And of course, we're hurting the relationship with God. Because when we worship success, that means we're not worshiping God. When we're worshiping success, it means we're not fully following Jesus. And so we can find that our relationship with God is harmed because we have this false sense of security. We, we think everything's okay, that I'm fine. But then we look back at life and we wonder what has happened to those relationships. We wonder why people at work don't want anything to do with us anymore. We wonder why our marriage is where it's at. We wonder why deep down in our soul we feel so empty. It's because we've had this false sense of security that success was given us. But we can be at the end of our life and look back and realize the whole time that we were wrong. Do you have a false sense of security? Because success can lead us to that. Lesson number two is success can lead us to thinking of ourselves more highly than we should. Uh, used to have a really good friend, best friend, honestly. Uh, we were in ministry together, and a few years back, um, he got out of ministry and ended up working for Dell and was selling the cloud to the Army specifically. Uh, worked himself up in, in that company, did really well, and then ended up at another company and did really well there and ended up another company and moved down to Austin, Texas. I was, uh, I was in Austin, Texas for a wedding that I was officiating back in the spring, and uh, I was like, haven't talked to him in a while, called him up. And so we hung out a, a couple of, of days. And, and we're kind of talking about, you know, what, what's going on, how you've been. And here's somebody I used to talk to every single week. We used to get on the phone every single week. We were texting all the time. I hardly ever hear from him anymore. I text him every once in a while to check in. And it's like a one-word answer, and that's it. So I, I'm just checking in, like, hey, man, how you doing? What's going on? Tell me about your job. He's like, yeah, you know, um, I don't really like it that much. I was like, okay. He's like, you know, I'm looking for a new job. I don't think they, they see me as very important here. I don't think they take care of me. I, I don't think they understand what I bring to the company. You know, they don't pay me enough for what I do. I was like, all right. I was like, I mean, this relationship's kind of broken. So I'll just go ahead and ask him, like, so how much are you going to get paid this year? He's like, man, I'm just going to make like $400,000. <laughs> I was like, here's my resume and I can start on Monday. <laughs> that works for me. There's this one part of me that, that looks at this guy who, again, used to be my best friend, and I look at him and I think to myself, like, you're successful. You, you've made it, right? You, you, you've got a, a big, big paycheck. You've got a big title. You've got a big truck because he's in Texas, right? <laughs> you've got a really nice, expensive, big house. I mean, I look at you and, and I think you're successful in how the world would define success. But then I kind of stop and I look back and he divorced his wife. He ended up meeting someone else, and they lived together down in Austin. He's got three kids. One of his kids won't even talk to him anymore because everything that's taken place in, in this whole deal. And for me, selfishly, here was a guy that I was best friends with. And again, we talked all the time. We played golf. We hung out. We, we connected. And, and now when I, I contact him, I get like a one or two word answer and then kind of get ghosted. I, I'm thinking to myself, what, what's happened here? Oh, I, I know what's happened. 
you've become successful. And the only people that are really important to you are the people that are going to help you in the work that you do. And so if you don't kind of fit that, then at this point, they're not that important. And what you're really saying is that you are more important than so many other people in your life. We look at Naaman. And Naaman, we would look at him and think he had it all. And I think Naaman thought he had it all. And we can kind of gather that because of the way he looks at Elisha. He's like, why won't this guy come talk to me? Like, I don't understand this. I'm angry. I'm upset. Getting full of rage. I feel disrespected. Because he, he looks at, at Elisha and is like, Elisha, you should know who I am. And that I am very, very important. And too often when we get to this place of success, we look around at other people and we think, you should look at me differently because I am so important. I'm more experienced. I'm smarter. I got a better title than you do. I make more money than you do. I've got power. And it just becomes a part of who we are. And so for me, even as a pastor, who's not making $400,000 a year, by the way, <laughs> um, as I think about me and my role, I can sometimes think I'm more important too. And so here's what I've had to do. I've had to go to a passage in Galatians 6, uh, chapter 6, verse 3. It's up there on the screen right now, or not yet, but we'll be here in a second. But Paul's writing this letter to this, this group of churches in Galatia. Yeah. That's the most, I think that might be the best scripture in all the Bible. It's true. It's in there. Go look. Now, depending on what version you read, but in the, uh, the one I read, NLT, it's like, you are not that important. And you know what I have to do? I've learned that one. One, because it's short and it's easy, right? I come back to this one all the time to be reminded, hey, Chad, guess what? You are not that important. Maybe for some of us, we need to take this passage and tattoo it on our arms. Put it on our phones, put it on a postcard, or I mean a post-it note, whatever. Put it on a postcard and send to somebody who needs it, right? <laughs> you are not that important. It's one of the reasons I ask you not to call me Pastor Chad. Seriously. Uh, when you say Pastor Chad, it elevates me into this position I don't want. All right, now, I'm a pastor, and I've worked 24 years in the ministry, and I think I deserve that title, but I don't want to be called that. I'll just keep that for myself and for tax purposes, okay? <laughs> That's it. But for me, it is this, it's like, well, well hold up a second. I'm, I'm not that important. This is about a church community working together. My job is just kind of oversee and help lead and do some vision stuff. That, that's, that's my role. That's my job. And oh, by the way, Chad, you are not that important. And maybe for some of us who are achievement addicts, who worship the God of success, we need people in our life that, says, that tell us, hey, you, you're not that important. You're not that important. Now, does that mean somebody walked out and they're a counselor like, in the counseling world, we tell people, you're important. I said, yeah, I know, there's sort of this rub there, right? The idea being is sometimes we can allow who we are and what we have and our success to make us feel like we're better than other people. And I keep coming back to Galatians 6.3 as a reminder that, you know what, we're not. We are not that important, but we're called by God to live the life that we're in. 
And that's the important thing that we should follow in our life. So sometimes when we have success, we think about ourselves more highly than we should. So remember, you're not that important. Lesson three, last one, we have to redefine success. There used to be a time in my life where um, as, a, as a pastor, again, being in ministry 24 years, um, there was only two things that mattered, butts and bucks, okay? Butts and bucks. What are butts and bucks? Butts are how many people show up at your church on a Sunday morning? And so when I'd be talking to pastors, that's really one of the first questions like, hey, you're a pastor, that's great. Where do you pastor? Wonderful. How many people come to your church? It seems like it's always the first question. Second question is the bucks piece. How much do people give, right? What are your offerings? What's that look like a week? What's that look like throughout the year? And so in these settings, you'd have these conversations and that was about the end of it. Over time, I think as I have matured as a Christian, as a leader, uh, as my faith has gotten stronger, I've realized those two things, they're important, but they're not the most important thing. I mean, butts are important because it means people are coming here on a Sunday morning, which means that we have more and more people to help take their next step towards Jesus. That's why we exist here. Bucks are important because ministry-wise, that's how you're able to afford to do what we do within our church, within our community, within our world. And so those things are important, but they don't define success. And so I've had to go back and say, hey, I need to redefine what success looks like. What does that look like for us here at The Journey? What does it look like for me How have I had to change it? It's like this. I see success as watching and seeing how many marriages that are broken are starting to be mended. For me, success is is seeing how many people whose finances were a mess are starting to be fixed through a class like FPU. I, I have redefined success as how many people that call the journey home are in one of our 19 groups that, that we have. Or success is the number of coaches we have in place for the 250 plus volunteers that we have here at The Journey. Success is by looking in our community and say, hey, what does our community say about this church? Is it negative? Is it bad? Do people hate this place? Or do they look at us and say, hey, you're a church for this community. We, we may not fully agree on your theology, but you know what? Well, we don't care because you're giving back to this community. You're making a difference in this community. To me, that's how we redefine success. How many people are working on themselves through our connection with Safe Harbor Counseling? How many people here are helping other people take their next steps towards Jesus? See, for me, I had to redefine what success was because I got stuck in this one area and it's like, that's, that's sort of important, but it's really not. Now, what are the numbers? What are the stories? Who are the people's lives that are fully being changed? And so maybe for you, if you're still stuck in chasing that God of success, maybe what you need to do now is redefine what success looks like right where you are. Because before, success may have been that title, may have been that corner office, it may have been more medals on your chest. Maybe success for you is spending a little bit of time with that person you work with, you know is going through a hard time. Man, you want to bulldoze over them and you want to go forward. Maybe God's like, no, 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 no. That kind of success, it might come in the future. Right now, this is what success looks like for you. See, all of us in some way need to redefine what success is. That's why I love this passage out of Philippians. Uh, Paul is writing this in Philippians chapter three, verse five. Here's what he says. 
I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I love this because he puts, puts an exclamation point there, right? He's like, I was it. I, I was that person. He says, I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. So here's Paul who's writing this. He's writing to this particular church in Philippi. And he's telling them, he's like, look, let me give you my resume. Let me tell you a little bit about myself. And so he goes through this, this long list. And he's like, I was important. I had it all. I was wealthy. I was moving up. I had a big title. People knew who I was. I mean, he's saying that I was very, very successful. Something happened in his life. Verse 7. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul looks at his life. And in our world, if we saw Paul, we would say, Paul, you are successful. That you, you've had it all. And Paul's like, yeah, but it was all worthless. I was trying to find value and security and worth and success. But you want to know where I found my success? It was from following Jesus. Because I'm fully following Jesus, because Jesus has given me a new lease on life, my, my security, my value, and my worth come through that connection and relationship with him. If you chase after the God of success, you're chasing after the wrong God. Don't try to find your security and your value and worth and the things the world say, says are important. Maybe we can be more like Paul. And we can find our success through the connection and through the love Jesus Christ has for us. And then we can try, we can find our true security, our true value, and our true worth.